Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of my old Kentucky podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me as always is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today? Doing well, Robert. How are you? Doing very well. Today on the show, we have Civic Lex. Specifically, we have Adrian Paul Bryant and Richard Young, who are staff members at Civic Lex. Richard is the ED, the executive director, and Adrian is the newsroom and communication strategist. And they talk to us about that organization. If you've never heard of Civic Lex, they are unique interesting amazing they're great uh basically if i ever have anything i need to research about lexington for this show or for any other reason that's the first place i go they have tons of information about all the issues facing lexington including original reporting uh ways for people to interface with the government on those issues explainers about why those issues exist and what they mean and what the potential changes to the law uh entail all that kind of stuff so we had them on to talk about their organization how it came to be what they're doing and what they're going to be doing in the future uh it's a little bit long. It's like a 45-minute interview, but it's a lot of really good and interesting information. Jasmine, I really enjoyed that. What did you think? Yeah, I did too. I first heard about Civic Lex through doing this show. You know, when we talk about Lexington, that's where I go as well. I searched everywhere trying to find information about Lexington judicial races this past fall when we talked about elections and i that was that was the one place that had information um and so they do a lot of really cool work and i i really enjoyed the kind of different unique interviews we've been doing lately and this one was no different yeah absolutely um we have lots of stuff to talk about on the actual show but i have some original reporting for you jasmine um were you aware uh, of when Morgan McGarvey's daughter kind of went viral for that video where she's like waving her hands and somebody's like she's casting a spell on the House of Representatives? Do you remember yes. this? Okay, <laughs> yeah. so this it was, happened. It was when it was when all the McCarthy stuff yeah, was happening during, during the speaker, and that was like she she kind of went viral. Uh, and I've mentioned it on the show a few times. So Morgan McGarvey only lives a street over from me, uh, and, and we're neighbors. And I actually uh, saw his daughter and or his two daughters and his wife uh, walking in the neighborhood, and um, I asked her you know, uh, how that all went for her. And she goes, I was just singing songs from Moana. So, and she was in fact not casting a spell. She was singing songs from Moana. So I felt like that, the record- okay, no magic going we, on. We need we need to set the record straight here on, on behalf of Morgan McGarvey's daughter. And it's important that we do that here. Uh, yeah. Well, I love the Moana soundtrack, <laughs> so I get it. Uh, so does she. And maybe so does the whole, you know, House of Representatives, who knows. Uh, we have a lot of stuff to talk about that's really important on the show this week. First of all, Jasmine's going to be talking to us about uh, a whole bunch of anti-trans bills that are sweeping the Kentucky legislature. In this session, which we were told was not going to have a lot happen, a lot is starting to happen, and a lot of it is focused on one subject, and that is uh, really awful and egregious attacks on the trans community. So Jasmine's going to go through a lot of bills that are doing that, what they're going to do potentially, and, and kind of the pay, pace at which some of them are moving through the legislature. And I have a, a story about Jamie Comer, just about his 2023, which has been pretty interesting. His profile has risen significantly. He has a national profile now. People across the country know who he is and talk about him. Uh, so let's just talk a little bit about that since he's growing in importance across the country. So without any further ado, Jasmine, talk to us about this flurry of anti-trans bills. All right, Robert, like you said, the big theme so far since the session started back last week has definitely been um, some anti-trans and LGBTQ legislation. Um, and so I wanted to kind of run through some of those. And I have in our notes 
a summary of a lot of the things that these bills do. I'm not going to go through all of all of that because we would be here all day. Um, but maybe if if we're putting out a newsletter this week, we we can put those notes in there um, because a lot of them kind of do some of the the same things. So the first one is Senate Bill 102 and House Bill 173. They're you know the same the the same bill, but they're an omnibus parents' rights bill, essentially. Um, the Senate version is sponsored by Lindsay Titchener. Um, that's my senator. And this is something that the this like parents' rights thing is something that she campaigned on. Yeah, um, this absolutely. was like her big issue. And the House version is sponsored by Josh Calloway. Um, and so this bill is about parents having the right to make decisions for their child without obstruction or interference from a public school. And it does things like establishing a complaint procedure for violating parents' rights um, and would allow parents to sue if districts don't respond according to the process. It would allow uh, parents to review curriculum, books, and things like that. They would have to consent to most health procedures. Um, it would require them to inform parents if a child changes their pronoun, their name, or gender expression at school, prohibit trainings on the use of pronouns, prohibit mask or vaccine requirements, and, and the like. And so um, that's that's a big comprehensive parents' rights bill that's been filed in both the House, House and Senate. Um, and then there's another one that, that's pretty similar in the House. That's House Bill 177. And that's another parents' rights bill that um, states that the government can't burden a parent's rights without a compelling interest. And it does a lot of the same things. And it also includes a lot of language about... Um, Health information requires like written parent consent for all mental and physical health care decisions, consent about how health information is stored, um, government employees, aka teachers, cannot encourage or coerce children from withholding information from parents. There, I think that's getting at changing pronouns, names, sexual identity, gender identity, those kind of things. Um, and then it also requires parental consent for instruction on human sexuality or sexually transmitted diseases. And I thought this was pretty wild um, because human sexuality and STDs are, are something that like you you learn in every health class your first year of high school. And I think you would have to have like written parent consent for that under this bill. Yeah, that that would be a huge change and for the worse for sure. Yeah, and then like um notif parents must be notified about like locker room and changing procedures and restroom procedures and just all of these things. Um and then of course we have another bathroom bill. That's House Bill 30. Um, and then a lot of these bills also include bathroom bill language within them. Ho House Bill 58 would allow medical providers to refuse to participate in procedures that violate their conscience and give them the right to be free from discrimination um, 
for refusing to do those procedures. And that also creates a civil penalty if they're discriminated against. House Bill 120 prohibits gender transition procedures for people under the age of 18 and permits a cause of action for any um, procedure that's performed in violation of that law. And then the big one that I want to talk about, because I think I think this is the one that is moving. Um, right. And this is Senate Bill 150. And this one is sponsored by Max Wise, who is Kelly Craft's running mate. Um, and this one has already passed out of the Senate Education Committee. It passed 11 to 1. Um, Reginald Thomas, a Democrat, was the lone no vote for this bill. And so... What this bill does is it allows teachers to use pronouns aligned with a student's biological sex, even if that's not how a student identifies. It prohibits state education officials from offering guidance to districts regarding how to approach pronoun usage. It does not require educators to out students to their parents, especially if they feel they're at risk for abuse or getting kicked out. It allows conversations about human sexuality, but requires schools to give parents a two-week notice and the option to opt out of the lessons. And so this bill is really bad, but it's, I guess, a compromise bill that's I wouldn't it's not a compromise bill because Democrats are not going to support it. Um, but it's a slightly more palatable version than the Senate bill 102 um, or other versions of these bills that are, have been filed. I think it's tempered slightly. Um, Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't require, you know, written consent for the human sexuality conversation, but it does require notice and an option to opt out. And it, it does allow teachers to, misgender students and not use their pronouns um but it it does say that you know they don't have to out them to their parents if they think they're at risk for abuse and so it it is tempered compared to the bills filed by um josh calloway and lindsey titchener right um but but still a really bad bill yeah. that is is dangerous for lgbtq children yeah, and, and completely unnecessary i don't know like wh- where where is the problem that's being solved by this i i just i don't know i don't know it's tough yeah absolutely um several floor amendments have been filed by democrats to this bill um some by reggie thomas and some by karen berg reggie thomas's amendments in include um, allowing students to switch teachers if a teacher violates their sincerely held beliefs, um, an amendment stating that no policy should force a teacher to violate sincerely held principles. Karen Berg's amendments um, include giving parents the right to require school personnel to address children by their by a specific name or pronouns. Um, and delete a requirement that a, a child's birth certificate must be the original unedited birth certificate. And then an amendment that would require that a school report a child as dependent, neglected, or abuse, dependent, neglected, or abused if a child refuses mental health services 
Uh, if a parent refuses mental health services, if a child poses a threat to themselves or someone else, yeah, um, those amendments will certainly uh, not pass. Yeah, I, I think the, the, there, there's, I mean, they're all good amendments that I think would make the bill, make a bad bill a little bit less worse. But I think the one that Karen Berg filed about parents, I thought was the my my favorite of them because so much, so much of this is about like parents rights saying right. you know uh, a, a parent should be allowed to move their child's teacher if uh they don't want them to be referred to by their their name uh and you know of course they're gonna shut this down because it doesn't have anything to do with principles it has to do with being anti-trans um one thing that is wild is like you know the, how, how much actually what these bills do in my opinion is like solve a problem that doesn't exist and, and create other new problems like this original unedited birth certificate thing like my daughter's birth certificate had my wife's name spelled wrong on it in the first first uh the first yeah printing. my name is my name is spelled wrong on my birth certificate so you would have to have your wrong name i mean i don't know mm-hmm. like are, are you legally not allowed to have your correct spelling of your name because you know and and i mean i guess all paperwork about about my kid uh would would have to <laughs> have my wife's spelled name name spelled wrong uh because of this this law i don't know so uh yeah just just wild uh how how all these things come together definitely yeah and several people testified in opposition of the bill um and provided really powerful testimony chris hartman of the fairness campaign um testified about youth trans youth suicide rates um and he said that one in five trans youth have not just thought about suicide but have attempted suicide Miles Joyner, who is a trans man and a therapist, um, testified about working with trans youth and said that they will be suicidal if they're repeatedly misgendered and said, I am begging for their lives. Mason Chernosky, also a trans man, testified about school being a safe place when he wasn't out to his parents, um, but having to constantly like live in that fear that someone would out him. Um, and, and then I, I think, I think the other thing that is that surrounds all of this is that Karen Berg lost her trans son to suicide less than two months ago, um, and she also gave a speech begging her co- colleagues not to politicize this issue. She said, "I'm going to make an open plea to the members of this body that we avoid politicizing issues that are literally killing our children, that are literally putting them in the grave." We are politicizing this for no reason. And and I think that's true. I, I don't understand this hysteria around this issue. I think Max Wise also gave a speech about wor- being worried about furries in schools. And, and I, I, I don't understand... <laughs> It, it it is it's just so hard to for me to wrap my head around and i mean i think the reason why it's so hard is because i just i just have known so many trans people in my in my life who who have faced situations that this bill will create and it's been such a problem in their lives like it is what causes so much anguish so much mental illness in in people is you know, not not because they're trans is because of the way that people act because they're trans. And it is, you know, it, it just just watching and seeing how that's impacted people for, for so long makes me just 
wonder like have these people n- never met a trans person before and, and i wonder like i really do wonder you know if if max wise knew trans people if there were trans people in his life like would he still do this and and i'm a little afraid of the answer because i think it's probably yes uh and i think it's probably because you know he wants to be lieutenant governor that bad that he's willing to do this but but it is just it's just devastating and and, and the other piece of this on top of it is just the courage of, of karen berg in the face of this grief which you mentioned is so fresh just a couple of months yeah, old i truly don't know how she could do this like and you know i you know <laughs> Facing a politicized tragedy in your life, it's hard. It's so hard. Uh, And many people, you know, our family included, like, had to spend some time not talking about it. And Karen Berg has not afforded that opportunity. She walked right into the legislative session a couple of months later and faced down people who completely ignored the tragedy that she faced and, in fact, made the situation that, that killed her child worse. Um, and, and that requires just remarkable courage. And I just respect her so much for what she's done. Yeah. And when you say, you know, you don't think these people have ever met a trans person. One of the, one of the trans men who testified was talking about how easy it is just to use someone's name and pronouns. And he said, I think it was Miles Joyner. And he said, you're here calling me Miles. See it, how easy that is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, th- I mean, this is just something that it isn't an issue, but Max Wise and other Republicans are are characterizing this as we're not trying to harm children. This is about parent empowerment and the right to make our children's educational decisions and the free speech of teachers and whatever (laughs) yeah and that's that's just like all uh, guys i don't know yeah one thing i do remember is i think it was mason chernoski said during their train or during his tra- uh uh during um you know what they were saying and i don't remember it might have been miles Jorner instead uh, that like god would be unhappy with what was happening or god will have no mercy or something to that effect and then like an hour later the power went out and the whole capital so you know in the midst of a wind and, and rainstorm so there you go you know i don't know so it should be a sign maybe we should take it uh for face value and just not pass this bill so that's my advice at least yeah but you know, I think it, Kentucky ha- has avoided these bills when other states have passed them for, for several sessions now. And it, it kind of feels like with an even more conservative body, um, especially some of these like further right Republicans, we're going to get some version of a don't say gay bill. And I th- I think that this Senate Bill 150 is is probably the one um, that's most likely to pass, and it it's it's a really bad bill. Um, that's you know that's the only thing we can say about it. It's it's hateful. It's it's harmful. Um, Bashir was asked about it, and he said that he was struck by the callousness of it, and expressed concerns that it will increase bullying in schools, especially if students who are already marginalized. Um, and I agree with that sentiment from our governor. 
Yeah, uh, in the face of running for re-election, nonetheless. I mean, he could have been more forceful. There's no doubt about it. But, I mean, I also, like, am impressed that somebody running for governor of Kentucky is willing to say even that much. So Yeah. Oh, one last thing about this is I saw that there was a walkout at Atherton High School in protest of these bills today. And I love to see that. The mm-hmm. the kids are all are all right. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, none of those kids have a senator right now. So, uh, you know, well, well, they will soon. And yeah, you know, they that uh, that person will almost surely will, will surely, uh, you know, um, take up their cause uh, in Frankfurt. So. All right. Um, yeah, that's tough. Going to get tougher, unfortunately. But, you know, we talk about Kentucky government from our perspective, and that is how it goes most of the time. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Jamie Comer. He's uh, had an interesting 2023 for sure. So just some background on Jamie Comer in case you're like, who the heck is that? He was first elected to the United States House of Representatives in 2016. Prior to that, he had served six terms in the Kentucky House of Representatives and one term as the state's Secretary of Agriculture. He ran in 2015 uh, in the Republican gubernatorial primary, but lost to Matt Bevin by, I didn't write the number down, but I believe it's 83 votes. It was a very, very, very close election, and Matt Bevin won by a very small margin. World would have been very different if Jamie Comer had gotten 83 votes, uh, those 83 votes. Um, While Comer served in Kentucky, while he was both Secretary of Agriculture and while he was in the House of Representatives, he was known as a relative moderate who was willing to work with both sides of the aisle to achieve progress. Uh, He worked with Democratic Auditor Adam Edelin to investigate Richie Farmer, who was his predecessor in the Agriculture Secretary's office, and that case ended in charges and a conviction of Richie Farmer, who ended up spending some time in prison. He worked with Republicans and Democrats in the legislature to champion better hemp legislation in both Frankfurt and then eventually wound up with the farm bill that allowed for like legalized hemp in Washington. I I mean, I'm willing to go out and say, you know, I don't know if we would have gotten legalized hemp if if Jamie Comer hadn't been the agriculture secretary during during that period of time. He had a national impact on that uh, situation. Uh, and, and definitely during the 2015 primary when it kind of came down to Matt Bevin or Jamie Comer and third place Hal Heiner. I, I mean, I felt like Jamie Comer was kind of viewed as the most moderate selection of all three of those people. And, um, you know, that was kind of the space he, he ran from. That was the, 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 the kind of identity he almost kind of courted, I felt like, when he was running for governor. But since moving to Washington, Comer hasn't become increasingly partisan to the point where it's it's as bad as it possibly could be now uh in in the new congress the one that just started here in 2023 he's become the chair of the house oversight committee and that committee in washington dc has long been the place for some of the most bombastic hearings and investigations of the executive branch by congress You may remember Elijah Cummings, who is a Democrat investigating the Trump administration for a lot of different things. Uh, You may remember Trey Gowdy, a silver-haired South Carolinian, uh, and his investigation into Benghazi while Hillary Clinton was running for president and, uh, you know, about her time as Secretary of State. You may, if you've been around as long as me, remember Henry Waxman investigating the war in Iraq. All of these happened in hearings in the Oversight Committee. That's where this kind of thing happens. As the chair of this committee, 
Jamie Comer's profile has raised significantly in Washington, D.C. He's, uh, you know, leading investigations into Hunter Biden, into Twitter, into those classified documents that have been, that have been found in, in Joe Biden's personal residencies and, and, and more, more than that also. Uh, with that, he's been all over the media. He's been on CNN. He's, I think he's been on Meet the Press more than once. He's a regular on all of the Fox News commentary shows. And, you know, he's had a several, you know, major newspaper features, including some national newspapers and a pretty significant one that he provided some, you know, insight into, uh, at, in the Herald Leader. Very good piece there as, as well. So, so he's definitely had an increased profile. Um, all of Jamie Comer's investigations have been extremely partisan in nature. That's not unusual for the House Oversight Committee, but that's just kind of the way it's gone. Uh, that That's kind of the role he's decided to play. I, I wanted to do this, sh- this uh, segment today because the first of the major hearings that are planned for the House Oversight Committee in the new Republican House took place last week on, on Wednesday, February the 8th, and it was about Twitter. Uh, you, if you are on Twitter or if you've been following the story, it's kind of weird. The, the GOP wanted to have this hearing because of Elon Musk's Twitter files. Elon Musk, uh, a quixotic billionaire who owns, you know, Tesla and helped start, was it eBay or PayPal? One of the two. I don't know. That's where he originally made his money. Uh, he now, you know, sold a bunch of his Tesla stock and, and bought Twitter and uh, has access to all of their internal documents. And he has allowed some journalists to take a look at Twitter's internal files. And, you know, they've kind of created this story around the, the company's decision to block a New York Post article about Hunter Biden's laptop during the 2020 election. Um, Jasmine, do you know about the Twitter files? Is this something that you have any sort of uh, inkling about? Not really. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's it's definitely a very online story. The journalists that Elon Musk set, uh, uh, you know, on this story were an interesting selection. I don't know. They may be independent. They may be – they're like substacker people who used to have a bigger profile. Matt Tybee, who uh, was with the Rolling Stone for a long time, and Barry Weiss, who I think was – she was either with the New York Times or – She was with New York Times. Yeah, uh, but both of these people are interesting selections of people to kind of tell the story. Um, you know, I feel like most of the reporting has fallen a little flat, but, you know, I feel like the, the Republican Party saw a, a, a p- place to make some hay with this hearing and definitely like Elon Musk wanted them to do it. So that's what they did. The hearing itself did not get good marks from anybody. Um, I don't think the GOP liked the result. I I wasn't paying as close attention to their reaction. But what's probably worse for Comer is that Democrats actually scored some really important points about Twitter during the Trump administration. So they had intended that the Republicans had intended to make Democrats look bad or Twitter look bad in this. And and what happened was a lot of these former Twitter executives got up and, and said, you know, they bent their own rules and decided to bend their own rules on misinformation to accommodate President Trump, who 
was often sharing misinformation and did not have that uh, classified as such by by the app. And also we learned uh, in a little bit more of a titillating twist that uh, the White House reached out to Twitter in an attempt to have a post by Chrissy Teigen removed. Okay, this is the one part of this that I did see. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know the best way to explain Chrissy Teigen to people who don't know who she is. She's extremely online. She's married to John Legend. She was a model or actress. Uh, you know, Model. model Model, okay. Um, and I, I don't know models that well. I do know musicians, so I knew who John Legend was. That's kind of my entry into who Chrissy Teigen is. And she's- yeah, I, I didn't know her until she married John Legend, but she was like on the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue. Ah. Okay. That, or something. I don't know. Well, there you go. Um. So anyway, she is online a lot and uh, is. Uh, you know, if you are uh, interested in like a taxonomy of online personality, she was more of like a resistance liberal, if you are familiar with that term. Uh, but she was often tweeting directly at Donald Trump or saying mean things to Donald Trump. And uh, anyways, the White House asked to have a post of hers removed, uh, which was exactly what the uh, the Republicans had wanted to learn. But they thought it would be the other way around where Democrats or, you know, the FBI or the deep state or whoever were trying to get posts about Hunter Biden removed or something. So uh, basically the exact opposite of what Republicans wanted to have happened actually happened. Um, And so this overall hearing did not get good marks. So there will be additional hearings in the future. They're going to have hearings directly about Hunter Biden's laptop. They're going to have uh, hearings about you know, Joe Biden finding classified material at his home. Um, but, you know, when they do these hearings, there's going to be similar landmines. There's going to be more and more situations for uh, the Republicans and Jamie Comer's committee to kind of step in it like they did with this. Like, if they call a hearing, call for a hearing about these classified, uh, you know, documents at the Biden residencies, you know, how are you going to leave Mike Pence out who found classified documents at his residence? How are you going to leave Donald Trump out of the, uh, the you know, the hearing when basically it looks like he stole classified information? It wasn't like an honest mistake. He just kind of took stuff uh, on, on purpose. Like, how are you going to leave them out of the investigation and still come out looking at all like you are taking your job seriously? So those that how he's able to finesse that will be something um, that that has yet to be seen and based on his first appearance um, likely is going to struggle with. In addition, the White House and Democratic allies are starting to take on James Comer a little bit more. Ian Sams, who is a former important Kamala Harris staffer, has taken on the role of directly defending Joe Biden against these GOP investigations, a step that isn't unusual but hasn't been taken yet by the Biden administration. Um, The Herald-Leader reported that, that this guy was taking this on. So until now, James Comer had mostly been getting away with his rhetoric without a lot of consequence, without a lot of pushback by Democrats. I think the strategy up till now had been like, you ignore him, It will. It, nobody's going to pay attention. And now they're going to directly engage him, and that will be a more difficult situation for him for sure. So given the rough start to James Comer's first hearing and the additional attention being paid to him, he's going to have to do a lot better than he did last week to be seen as an effective investigator and to raise his profile to the place I think he wants it to be. Regardless of all of this, though, I I think the saddest thing about his uh, situation now is that, you know, he's he's left his identity as that independent, moderate government official in the past. That's the characterization on which he built his entire political career up until, you know, kind of recently. 
he's a GOP partisan through and through. And I don't know, like, I, I hope that that costs him in the future. I, you know, I don't think that that's a good identity for anybody to take on. Um, but I don't know if it will. I, I think it's likely he has larger ambitions. Um, but I do think his, uh, his effectiveness in the role of chair of the House Oversight Committee will be important to whether he runs for senator or governor in the future. So that's all I have to say about James Comer. Jasmine, what do you think about all this? Do you think James Comer has been, uh, you know, doing an effective job? Do you feel like he uh, is, you know, in line to take on a bigger job? And what do you think about him and his new identity as a GOP partisan? Yeah, I mean, it's sad to us because we are Democrats who knew him as a more moderate Republican who seemed to be pretty fair and, you know, shoot it straight, I guess. Um, and now he he just kind of feels like one like a Fox News pundit or, or yeah. something, you know, and... But I don't. But I don't know if it. I don't think it's sad to the people he's trying to cater to. So um, maybe, maybe it's working for him. And I don't. I don't really know though. Like what his future is. If if he wanted to run for governor, you know, maybe he didn't want to do it this time because he saw that it would be a crowded primary. Um, and so I don't really know when. He would run, you know, if, if a, a Republican defeats Bashir this time around, presumably they would run for a second term. And, and so it, it would be a while before he would be seeking the governorship if a Republican won. Um, but if Bashir wins, maybe he would run the next time. And then Senate, you know, I don't know, maybe now that Daniel Cameron ran for governor. Is he the person who is going to run when Mitch no longer wants to be senator? Um, I'm not really sure. I hadn't really thought of him as running for that, um, but it seems like he's trying to carve out a spot as as something more than just um, the, the congressman from Western Kentucky or Frankfurt. Frankfurt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think... I, I hear what you're saying about the people who he wants to impress, but I do think that that is a sad state of affairs because I do think it speaks to kind of just the partisan nature of who people want to talk to. I, I mean, yeah, definitely. I, I know a lot of Republicans who really liked the character that Jamie Comer cut when he was this moderate person. And I think a lot of like normal voters kind of crave mm -hmm. that in politicians, Republicans and Democrats alike, and um, aren't being very well well served with that. Um, but yeah, I think I think everybody kind of has more of their base that they want to speak to. And, and Jamie Comer has changed his base from, yeah, like that independent moderate group. Yeah. To it, yeah, I think you're right. I think no matter like who you are, you can see when someone has changed. Like I... For example, as a Democrat, I really liked Amy McGrath when she ran in Kentucky Six mm -hmm. in um, against Andy Barr, and then when she launched her campaign against Mitch McConnell, it just seemed like this different yeah. person, and she didn't like say any of the things she said before, and I was like, "This, this is weird. I'm not. I don't know about this." and 
and this is a is a much more extreme example of that but but people can see when someone isn't acting the way they were before and and Jamie Comer is certainly not the politician he was in 20 20- 12 2015 even yeah yeah absolutely uh which is unfortunate um but you know the path he chose and you know we all just got to feel the way that we feel about it all right uh that's it for the show part uh we have a that great interview with civic lex coming up right now richard young is the executive director and adrian paul bryant is the newsroom and communication strategist for civic lex a nonprofit organization in lexington which educates about civic issues through Engaging explainers for complex government functions, medium and long-term tracking of important issues facing the city, um, and original programming for groups to learn about the city, and original porting about ongoing issues facing Lexington. Um, so, Richard and Adrian, welcome to my old Kentucky podcast. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks so much. And I want to briefly say I've been a very long-time fan of the podcast this is kind of like a bucket list thing for me to be on so really excited well we we are long-term fans of civic lex so i guess it is a nice uh a nice situation here for us both to be in so yeah you know i'm a huge fan and i know jasmine is too of civic lex and but the thing is about you guys it's such a unique organization the the types of things that you guys do the mixture of civic education, reporting, all these different sorts of programming that goes on in, in Lexington. I don't know if there's another organization across the country that does that specific mix of things. So I I've really don't know this story and genuinely am asking, like, how did this happen? How did you guys end up doing all of these things? What's the story of how this all kind of came to be? Sure, yeah. So um, I founded Civic Lex, uh, good Lord, uh, about six years ago. Um, you know, sort of got started in my in my previous job and just through my general presence in Lexington, I've been in City Hall a lot. And in City Hall, you know, just like in many city halls across the country, uh, there are very rarely is anyone in there that's not there like professionally, right, in some capacity. Um, and I remember this really specific sort of like decision that was being made about our city zoning ordinance. And um, there was uh, literally no one there that was not being paid to be there in some capacity. And, you know, that is not a very healthy way for decisions to be made, right, with a, with a very limited amount of engagement, especially people that have a really clear incentive and stake in what the outcome of that, um, of that decision would be. And so uh, I was um, got together with some folks who uh, had, there was an existing organization here in Lexington called Progress Lex that had been sort of um, vacant for about four or five years and just really the shell of an organization still left a couple board members and um, and, uh, you know, a few thousand dollars in a bank account. And I started a conversation with them about, you know, I think it'd be really interesting to start an organization that, that's really focused on that issue in particular, right? It's focused on how residents can get engaged very directly with local government. And, uh, they were like, oh yeah, that's, that, that sounds great. So that's a very, very short version of, of how, um, of how that sort of started. And, you know, when, when CivicLex sort of started first doing programming, which is about five years ago, um, we really focused on, on civic education broadly, right? Civic education for adults specifically, helping folks understand these big issues like affordable housing or um, how the budget works or sort of city's consent decree or all of these various things that are impacting Lexington. And we found that uh, people were really receptive. They loved learning more about local government. And then they would show up to a public meeting 
um, and found that it was not a very particularly welcoming experience. Um, and so from there, we sort of expanded into this other piece of our work, which is really about trying to work with the city um, government and with other sort of civic institutions here to make their processes much more open to that public feedback. Um, and so that's sort of the, the, the genesis of, of Civic Lex. And, you know, here we are five years of programming later and um, we're having a great time. Well, we're having a great time watching it, so that's that's good. Uh, you know, you guys, uh, you have funders like all nonprofits do, uh, and you know, I think of a lot of nonprofits. You know, they they fit into a specific like advocacy role or journalism role, but just kind of going on that trend of you guys being in this unique position, like you guys kind of straddle a lot of lines. And so, I mean, talk to us a little bit about how you choose which kind of grants or which kind of funders you want to work with and kind of how those conversations go with the people who you end up partnering with when you explain to them who you are and what you do. I'm sure that there's been some interesting conversations about how that's all gone. That there have. It is a, uh, you know, because we are such a strange organization, we don't fit very neatly into anyone's buckets. Um, And, you know, we've sort of taken this, um, pretty broad and encompassing approach to this to the funders that we that we target right we have funding from the national endowment for the arts all the way to um the you know the knight foundation who's really interested in journalism and civic engagement um to the trust for public land which is really interested in um you know investing in public spaces and open spaces and green spaces so sort of all across the all across the map and you know while uh i guess the the very nice version is that we think that, you know, these civic issues impact a broad variety of sectors. And so we think it's important to be engaged in all of those. Um, But really, a big part of it is there just aren't people funding the kind of work that we do, right? I think that there there are a lot of conversations that are happening nationally right now about how we need to invest in this sort of civic infrastructure, right? These things that help people get engaged and involved in their communities and in local democracy. And uh, but up until very recently, that conversation hasn't really been happening. And so we've had to have a pretty um, wide approach in the funders that we target um, just to be able to continue existing, right? We have a, a lot of, of you know member support and, and individual donors here in Lexington that makes up about 30 to 40% of our budget, but, um, and, you know, s- some other ways that we bring in revenue, but the the biggest chunk really comes from these, from from grants and, you know, I would say for every funder that we have received an investment from, um, I would say there are probably 10 that we haven't, uh, that we've applied to. Um, and I think, yeah, there's just a, because our model isn't very cleanly built after, you know, something that someone else has built somewhere, um, it's hard for folks to really get what we're doing. And it, it's a challenge, but I think one that over time, we've been able to really overcome by by doing good work and putting out, um, you know, putting out work product that is really important to our community and um you know makes a, makes an impact here in lexington yeah, so uh, we've had a lot of conversations with different journalists and journalism groups uh, on the show over the years. And, and, you know, of course, there's like an evolving kind of approach to bias in media and, and what it means to be unbiased as reporters or journalists uh, in, in 2023. And, and, you know, journalism as an industry has just shifted so much in, in recent years with Civic Lex and where you guys fit in with journalism being a, a, a huge symptom, like something somebody could point to to be like, well, <laughs> this is something that didn't exist 
exist 20 years ago for sure. So, so Adrian, you know, as in your position as, you know, newsroom and communication strategist, I, I'm kind of interested what, you know, given, you know, some of the funders that you guys have and probably some of the ways that they may, may even like require, uh, you know, some some statements around bias or whatever. What What is the approach to CivicLex and advocacy? Uh, is that is advocacy something that's baked into what you do? Do you try to remain unbiased in the way that like a traditional newspaper would have like 15 or 20 years ago? Uh, how does that all work for you guys there at CivicLex? Yeah, I would. De- we definitely try to be unbiased on all issues that come up. You know, I was. Uh, there's a man named Martin who has been engaged with our work for a couple of years, but recently um, he joined a, a city board, and so he's been going to a lot more city meetings and just trying to get the lay of the land. And he gave us a really kind compliment that he was like, "I've always enjoyed your work." Um, but I've not actually been in these meetings. But now that I'm in the meeting, I can confirm that you all are reporting like unbiased versions of what's happening and actually giving the act, the highlights that people should know, which um, which is really affirming to hear. You know, um, we are not investigative journalists um, by any means. We're really um, part of what I think helps us be unbiased is that what we're reporting on is you know, simply just what council members are saying or what the measures are. Whenever you um, read the Civic Lex weekly newsletter that we send out every Monday, all of the issues that we're talking about um, when we're talking about what council or some board or commissioner are speaking about is just from their agendas. They'll email us the agendas a week in advance. And we're really just kind of summarizing and, you know, maybe synthesizing with other issues going on in Lexington. Um but I'm not, you know, hanging out in the chambers with a fedora and a microphone asking uh, Mayor <laughs> Linda Gorton who such and such policy is going to help or hurt or anything like that. Um, a lot of the information just comes from the dockets or like from, you know, the experts and city staff that are talking about um, whatever proposals are at hand. Um, so that just kind of makes it naturally easy to keep um mine or Richard's or Kit's or any of our staff members' opinions sort of out of it. Um and uh, and it's also because it's sort of a week by week basis um, that also just kind of makes things easier. You know, we have big issue explainers that look that zoom out and talk about Lexington's context as a whole. But generally, we're kind of moving along with city government in our coverage, um, which uh, which definitely lends itself to that. And in terms of bleeding into advocacy, again, we don't do it on any city specific issues. And I'll let Richard speak more to this, but the type of advocacy that we do is explicitly linked to improving the democratic process and democratic engagement in Lexington. So when we do advocate for an issue, it is the root of it is just simply we're advocating for the ability of Lexingtonians to make their voice heard on an issue easier and more impactfully. And however they want to engage, whatever they want to engage on, we just kind of stay out of. Um, and uh, there's a couple of specific projects with that that I'll let Richard uh, talk a little bit more in depth about. Yeah, Adrian, I think I think you hit it right on the head. I mean, what when we this question comes up a lot, right? And you know, what we say is that we're not really, yes, we do have this like small piece of our work that is advocacy, but it's not advocacy for outcomes, right? It's advocacy for process. Like what we are, what we are really interested in is how these processes can be more open and how everyone, regardless of where you stand on any, on any issue, 
regardless of what issues you care about, um, that you have an ability to be informed and engaged about what's happening in your community. Um, so I could talk about a couple, you know, specific projects, but um, you know, I think a, a really great example uh, of this is uh, this program we're working on right now with uh, with our city council. Um, we approached the council about two years ago uh, and said, "Look, this the way that people provide input on issues coming before you is fundamentally flawed, right? Like people show up to the Thursday night council meetings, which is where the very last stop on the train." Uh, I guess it's the last stop on the train tracks. That doesn't matter. Okay, so it's the last stop for the legislation before it's adopted, and uh, and you know people show up, and that's like that's the thing. That's the one that's at six p.m. It's at a time that people can come. It's what everyone is directed to, and it is the worst time to show up, right? Because the issues are like the legislation's already been made, the ordinance has been written, it's gone through all of the divisions and departments that it impacts. It's gone before council multiple times, and at that point, for the council to pull the plug on it because of public sentiment. It's both for uh, for the actual legislation, right? It's not helpful. It's a waste of government resources. It's a waste of staff time. It's it's just not an effective process. And so, you know, we approached them, we said, look, we would love to do this big research project and then present some recommendations um, for how to change this process to make it better, to make it more effective for you, more effective for the public. And they said, yes. Um, and so we did that process and, and are now that uh, item is is getting worked on right now by a, a subcommittee. Um, and I think we'll have some, you know, have some finalized, we'll have some adopted recommendations in the next few months. Um, but I think that's a really great example of like, we're not approaching them to say, hey, we want you to, we think that you should do, an, you know, X, Y, Z um, on this particular item, right? It's really about the process that we're really hyper-focused on. And I think that, you know, it shows up in our, uh, in, in who engages with our work, right? In the next two weeks, um, we're going to be hosting budget workshops um, on, you know, workshops on, which is very self-explanatory, workshops on how the city budget works <laughs> um, for, you know, organizations in Lexington like KFTC and organizations in Lexington like Americans for Prosperity, right? Two very different organizations that have very different advocacy outcomes that they are looking for, but we're working with both of them and saying, look, y'all both need to know the, 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 how the budget works, how money comes in, how money goes out, how to get engaged and involved in the process, when's the best time, who to talk to, right? That is, that is our right as uh, as residents and as, as citizens of our city. Um, and we think it's important for everyone to know that. So yeah, we're, we do advocacy, um, not for outcomes, but for process. Yeah, I think you kind of already started talking about my next question a little bit. Lexington has like all cities, a significant number of major issues facing it at all times, like writing the budget to working with state and federal agencies on funding and projects to working with the community to find the best way to face issues like housing and economic development. And so um, we want to know, you know, what you all are working on in 2023. What are the biggest issues in Lexington that um, Civic Lex will be tracking in 2023? Yeah, so um, the there are a few. So Lexington does an annual budget, and so every year the budget's the big issue, at least for you know the first half or first quarter of the year. Um, so we're keeping a big eye on that, especially this year because um, we're 
more or less post-American Rescue Plan funds. Um, the city of Lexington has budgeted all of their ARPA funds. They've not spent them all, but they have a plan for the rest of them going mm-hmm. forward. Um, so some of that is still in play in the budget, but not to the, near to the extent that the last few years' budgets were. Um, so that's just going to be interesting. We also have a brand new council with uh, I believe six new council members who are all first term. So it's just, and we'll probably talk about that in other questions, but as it relates to the budget, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, And in terms of, you know, more perennial issues, uh, I would say that there are many different facets to the issue of housing that we're kind of keeping track of. Lexington, like the many cities in the United States, is has an affordable housing crisis. Um, but there are a few things that make Lexington's unique um, that are worth discussing. And um, one of them is the urban service boundary. So Lexington has, we call it an urban service boundary or um, USB for short. And it's sort of for people who don't live in Lexington, you can think about it as like the concept of city limits to the max. So there is a defined area in Fayette County that um, developers can build, you know, things that you think you associate with the city. So, you know, um, subdivisions, neighborhoods, shopping centers, businesses, business parks, all that can only be built within a certain area. And then everything outside of that area is pretty much rural farmland with a couple exceptions, but um, that's pretty much fillet the land. If you've ever been in Lexington and driving outbound on any of our major roads, you've probably noticed it that you'll hit a certain point where all of a sudden everything is green and there are no mm-hmm. buildings to be seen. That's explicitly by design with the urban service boundary. And um, every five years, this conversation comes up because we work on updating our comprehensive plan, which is a much bigger document than the urban service boundary. It sets the tone for how we do all urban planning. Um, so that's things like housing, parks, um, economic development. That's all wrapped up in the comprehensive plan. But what often happens in the discourse is that people tend to focus on the urban service boundary, which is important to discuss. Um, And so you have advocates that say that we should expand the urban service boundary to be able to build more housing and make housing more affordable because we increase the supply. There are other people that say that the urban service boundary doesn't have any effect on housing prices. Um, And like again, civic life does not have a stance on that issue, but that's something that is discussed so heavily that we keep track of that and um, and the comprehensive plan in general. We've done a lot of work on getting public input into that. Um, that we can, and we'll probably talk about that project a little bit later on. Um, so that's so housing is really the perennial thing um, that everyone's talking about at all moments in a hundred different ways. Um, and, and two more issues related to that. There's a, a group of activists that are advocating for the Tenants Bill of Rights, which has several, uh, there's kind of a pun, tenants to the Tenants Bill of Rights um, that are going before council. And council is kind of workshopping a few of those. But that has been a huge issue because um, I, I believe it's, and Richard can correct me on this, I'm sure he knows, um, but I believe that it's 49% of people that live in Lexington are renters. It's right at 50-50. It's 51-49, one way or the other. So it's a huge block. And um, that is a big conversation between um, people who are tenants who are advocating for more protection, like legal protections, a landlord registry, so that they can see um, 
what landlords own, what properties, and maybe file reviews for them and whatnot. And then there are, of course, landlords that are very much against this type of proposal because it would make them harder. They um, may um, open the door for more corporate landlords who don't live in Lexington to come in. It's a whole it's a whole thing. It's very early in its stages, so we've not covered it a whole lot on the website, but it's moving through. And lastly, there is a big proposal to regulate short-term rentals, and those are things like Airbnbs and Verbos that uh, are pretty much unregulated, I think that's fair to say, in Lexington. Um, there are a couple of things here and there, but for the most part, there's not any real basis to regulate them. And so there's a pretty hefty proposal that came up uh, at the end of last year to regulate um, Airbnbs and Verbos. And that got, I believe it was a two-hour meeting that was almost exclusively um, short-term rental operators that expressed opposition for various components of it. And again, that's in its very early stages. We'll see how that shakes out. Um, so we'll be we'll be tracking all of that this year. Definitely. Um, so I, I think we've started to touch on this a little bit, but um, talking about the research projects that you all have worked on. Um, but Richard, it, you know, in what other ways do you see the work of Civic Lex impacting the quality of government in Lexington? You know, do you see your education effort showing results when the city asks for input on new projects or policies? Yeah, that's a that's a that's a huge question. I think you know it's all people. We we talk with with folks a lot about like how can you like be sure that your work is working and like you know measurement and impact and all of that. And that's uh, a very regular conversation that we have. And I always sort of caveat it by like, well, here's what I think based on what I see, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so I'll, I'll start there. Um, and actually, I'd also love after I finish, I'd love I'd love for Adrian to talk about this because I've been had my head in this work for. Uh, what seems to be approaching a decade. Um, and Adrian's been with us for a year. So it'd be great to hear, uh, hear have some fresh eyes on this. But um, so the first thing that, that I guess I'll start with is saying like, we have amazing folks in our city government, right? We have really wonderful city workers that are trying to do interesting, innovative work um, to bring residents into public processes, to um, think about ways that we can address um, issues of, of, of racial equity and, making a more sort of sustainable environment, making a, a, a community that's a little bit easier to work in if um, you're running a business or a developer. Um, and so we, we have folks that are trying to do really, really interesting and good work. And there are 3,600 people that work for a city government. And so that's, you know, that's bureaucracy level of people. And anytime that folks are in a bureaucracy, right, it becomes sometimes challenging for um, individual efforts and and sort of um, you know, pushes from within this sort of administrative structure of the org of the of the city um, to really break out. And I think one of the interesting things roles that Civic Lex plays is we can actually sort of do that from the outside and and raise up the sort of um, the experience and the perspectives of folks inside city government to itself, right? We can sort of hold a mirror at city government and say, hey, this is actually kind of what some of the folks in here think, right? Uh, we did that with this public input process. We surveyed sort of the top 150 um, staff inside city government and found that they all want way more ways for the public to engage in local government. And so that, and we see that. Um, but in terms of, uh, there's a little bit, there's a little bit of a digression, I think, to get to actually answering your question. Um, so the I think we see it in, in a lot of small ways and in some big ways. 
so in big ways, we see it that the city is actually willing to work with us on these really big changes um, to how they gather input and how they engage with residents. Adrian mentioned, um, uh, uh, briefly alluded to our comprehensive plan, um, which is the most important document in our city government. Um, in my opinion, it sets the tone for everything, for everything about how our city grows and changes. It's so tremendously important. Everything from public transportation to food access, to housing, to parks, green space, environmental sustainability, it's huge. Um, and we, you know, we worked with our city. We were, we sort of ran this process that served as the primary public engagement mechanism for the comprehensive plans update um, this past year. We had in one week, 509 conversations across Lexington um, about land use and the future of our city, right? We gathered these thousands of, um, of, of, of residents feedback through sur a survey protocol and, and these sort of like, uh, you know, sort of narrative conversations and all these things. And that it, uh, was the equivalent of 15,000 public comments, right? It's huge. Most of that, you know, that has been on the comprehensive plan. And, um, and the city knew going into that, like, we may want to do X and the public may want us to do Y. And that could be a challenge, right? They knew going into the, that was the case. And they still said yes, because they see the value and the importance of building uh, government that reflects the priorities of its residents. And so what we see through that, right, the comprehensive plan that's being, that the goals and objectives of it, which is the sort of, are the goals and objectives of what the comprehensive plan does, pretty self-explanatory there, um, right, they reflect these, like, I would say pretty big changes in how our city thinks, um, right, they, there's a lot more that is going into the comprehensive plan this year, be focusing on racial equity, right, and we see that in how, um, we, we, you know, we are hearing so much more, um, so many more calls for uh, to make progress on issues of racial equity um, coming out of our uh, uh, out of the general public, and so you would expect to see that reflected. And the city is carrying that into its planning documents. Same with climate change and sustainability going into that because of public input provided by that. So it's like these big ways that we see it, right? But it's also like in these like really adorable, cute little details um, throughout that I think only us at Civic Collects really may <laughs> notice. Um, so like one thing, we started doing this public input process for council and we realized very quickly that there was no map for how legislation is made in local government. <laughs> There's like no, they, there was not in all of local government a thing that was like, here's how this works. Um, there's a code of ordinances that sort of verbally explains it over like eight pages, but like there's no like visual anywhere. So like for new council members, for people that are coming for the first time to a city hall meeting, like you just sort of are expected to figure it out. And so we were like, hey, why don't we make a, why don't we make a map? Uh, and so we made this map and we, uh, the legislative maps on our website. Um, and, you know, we got an email a couple of weeks ago. We worked very closely with folks in city government to make sure all of the right caveats and asterisks and like, well, yes, this normally works this way, but sometimes it doesn't work this way uh, was included. And we got this email um, from uh, from Stacy Maynard, who's um, a sort of main council administrator. Um, she emailed us a, a few weeks ago and was like, hey, we're going to put together like a newsletter for city council um, that talks about what's happening. And then, you know, in it, that month, um, can we like, can we put the map in? <laughs> we're like, yeah. And so we just like <laughs> rebranded our map for them and sent it over like in, according to the city of Lexington brand standards, made sure that blue horse got on there. And we sent it over to them. And like then that popped up and now all of a sudden, like this is like 
getting shared out, right? And so I think it's like there are so many, there's probably every week we see five, 10 little examples of like, uh, of how the city, I think, is thinking much more intentionally about public engagement and public education about its legislative process. Um, and I think we have a part to play in it. Certainly not all us, right? It's a lot of folks inside city government that want it this way. Um, but I do think that we're a very convenient excuse for the city to try things in new ways. Yeah, I think that's huge that the city government has been so receptive to or input and projects because I, I don't think every city would be that way. Um, and it's also just nice to have a map to show you how things work sometimes. So that's great. It turns out it's nice to know how legislation's made. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah to, um, uh, to fill in with what Richard asked about, like me having been here, you know, just over, just a little, actually, no, it's a year today, Richard. Wow. Valentine's oh, Day. Well, congratulations. Yeah. How about that? Yeah. Happy Valentine's Day to us. Um, yeah. <laughs> love Civic Lex. Um, a lot of my life. Um, so what I've seen kind of play out is it's more on the small details end of what Richard was um, speaking about with like the legislative map being in the newsletter and also that council staff office newsletter existing at all. I definitely don't want to take credit for any of the work that went into that because it's awesome. It was really great to see. Um, but I do think that like just having us around as being like sort of an informational source has inspired the government to like think more about how they do kind of external informational communication. I think you see that with individual council members too. Like I've noticed big changes in how every council member sends out their own newsletter to people in their district. And, and of course we read all of them uh, so we can kind of <laughs> know what's up, but a lot of them have just kind of started looking nicer, you know, graphic design is like uh, such a meme. Graphic design is our passion, um, but it, we do take presentation incredibly seriously seriously. And so uh, and I've seen that like a lot of council members newsletters just have started to look better over time. And I also want to give a shout out to the brand new council members. All of their newsletters look incredible and are also, and it's also language stuff too, like just trying to present things as simply as possible, you know, hit the big points, but try not to overload in jargon. That's something important to us that I see the government do more in their newsletters or like on social media and things like that, where it's just like, there's a lot more intentionality into communicating information kind of with the thought of like, oh, we want someone who doesn't really have any idea, barely has an idea what the government is, you know, to be able to read this and understand what's mm -hmm. going on. Um, and I've seen, uh, I've seen, you know, the mayor's office, council office, council members, all, and, and even, you know, divisions, like administration divisions within the government doing a lot more of that just in, you know, the last 12 months that I've been here. It's been really awesome to see. And I'd like to think that we played a pretty good size role in that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So, you know, in our opinion, Civic Lex has been a big success. Like the model has uh, been something that's been really helpful for us when making the show, for example. And, you know, based on the growing size of your staff and the amount of times we've seen your stuff referenced in the recent years, you know, it feels like other people agree with that as well. So, you know, what is next for you guys? What's the what's the vision for Civic Lex in the next few years as you guys, you know, undergo the same? If, are you are you planning on having as much growth as you had in the past few years doing a bunch of different stuff or or what? Are you asking where we see ourselves in five years? Um, <laughs> or, or six no. months or 20 years? Who knows? Um, yeah, no, I, I, I think 
so I've I have a couple things that that um direct, like interesting directions that I think CivicLux is going. So the first one um is we we just hired a new director of civic education. Uh, it's a new position for us um, back in November. Um and we're going to be rolling out over I guess we're sort of mid-rollout right now, um, of a new program that's built in partnership with Fayette County Public Schools that's going to be sort of we're working with a cohort of teachers from every high school in the city, um, every public high school, to basically take that mandatory freshman and senior civics classes and see how we can reorient that and build curriculum so that it's focused on local government. And that's important for a couple of reasons, right? Uh, folks that are under 18 can still participate even if they can't vote. And that's really important. This is their community. This is the community that they're going to be growing up in. And we want this to be a place that's built for them, right? And so they need to be involved and engaged in these processes just as much as adults do. And, you know, our hope is that that'll encourage folks to stay, right? If you're building a community that you, um, if you're helping build this community that is that reflects your ideals, you'll probably be more likely to want to stay there um, than if you're just disengaged from the process. So this sort of intergenerational approach to civic learning is a big thing that we're focusing on. Um, we're planning on, I think, building out a more formal newsroom, right? We um, already uh, provide uh, these this, our Civic Life Weekly that goes out every Monday. We also have um, all of these sort of reporting that we do from newsrooms uh, or from city council meetings and different board and committee meetings um, on our website. We are in every single board and committee meeting inside the city government, every public meeting we are at. Um, and we want to be able to cover those in a more robust way. Um, and potentially get into other types of sort of journalistic endeavors. And I think that's something that we see coming down the pike um, for for us uh, over the next um, next couple of years. And I think the last sort of big thing is that, you know, we get probably 15 to 30 <laughs> inquiries a year from folks that are like, hey, I want a Civic Lex here in Tallahassee. Uh, how are we going to, uh, can you help us? And our answer uh, up until, well, our answer still to this day is, that's a great idea. You should do that. Um, but I think uh, what our answer is going to be moving forward is, that's a great idea. You should do it. And here's how we can help you. So for the past year and a half, we've been um, documenting everything about our organization. Um, and in the next few months, are going to be launching um, uh, essentially this new service um, where we have this thick handbook that's like, hey, here's how we do everything from uh, think about our work to build our boards, to fund our organization, to design our programs, to run a workshop, every single thing about what we do. It's insane. I think like in pages, it's like, I don't know, a couple hundred pages um, that we're going to be making, uh, we're going to have up, up on our website for folks to use if they want to build their own version of CivicLex in their community. Um, we'll also have a technical assistance process that'll help folks um, that you know may need a, a little bit of a handholding to handhold. Um, we'll hold their hand, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, and you know, I think we're really interested to to, to see how we can help folks um, build their own version of our work in their community. Right? I think all the time you see national organizations and foundations dropping these sort of like copying and pasting things from one place to another and like dropping something in a community like here you need this um, and that's not really we don't really have any interest in that like we know a lot about Fayette County and then once you cross that line outside of Fayette County we're like ah, I don't know what's going on there. <laughs> so um, we don't want to you know uh, tell anyone how to do things in their in their communities but we do want to provide resources so that if you're interested in build, building you know a civic lex in Louisville 
um, here is how you would do it. Here's how we would do everything. Here's how we do everything and take what, take from it what you will and leave what you don't want. Um, and so I think that's another big thing that's coming up on our horizon. Yeah, so that's really cool to know. And I was actually going to be part of my next question was yeah. like uh, a, a, about, you know, other cities that might want to adopt something like this. But just to kind of pivot that question a little bit to say, you know, I think that there's a lot of benefit to this model in a lot of places across the country or this or the state. But, you know, Lexington had a local paper that was doing pretty well before that covered local issues. There's a lot of significant neighborhood groups that were already come into council meetings. Not all of them, obviously. And, you know, Civic Lex definitely takes that to several layers up. And I'm thinking about cities that are like smaller um, yeah. uh, areas that you know, the, the fiscal court or the, the city council or whatever meets in like the high school. Uh, like what would, what would like a, a civic lax for, for a place like that look like? Is that something you guys would be interested in helping with? And then also like, you know, we, people in Louisville always are like, well, Louisville and Lexington, that's just a whole different scale. And, and, it, and there's some truth to that too. Like if, can you scale it up? I mean, if, if New York city called you guys up and was like, we want to start civic New York, like what would that look like? Uh, is there a scale question to, to how this might expand to other places across uh, different sizes of cities across the state and country? Yeah, yeah. I think uh, you take that first, Richard, but I've got a few things I want to say on. Yeah. Um, I don't really, I mean, Louisville, I love Louisville. Y'all are great. Um, <laughs> but I don't really have any interest in like big cities um, and this work scaling up to big cities. It's really relational. Like, and that's something I don't think we've touched on enough uh, in this general conversation, right? It's like the, the thing that makes things happen in local government is people to people relationships, right? It's like who you know and who you feel, who's like, if you know if their kids like what soccer league they play in, like that's the thing that moves it, moves it forward, right? So those relationships are the currency that move things forward. And so that is sort of one of the fundamental pieces of our work is about expanding who has access to those relationships. And as you scale up, that relational fiber that sort of hold things together starts to break down, I think, little by little. Um, I've had a lot of experience working in very, very large cities, and I've had a lot of experience working in very, very rural communities. And I feel like communities Lexington size and smaller are uniquely positioned for the kind of relational work that we do um, to be successful. I'm not saying that I don't think a, a version of what we do, it wouldn't be successful in Louisville. I think it could be. Um, and, you know, New York, like, sure, whatever, like they can go figure their own stuff out. Um, but for places our size and smaller, like, yeah, I, that is what I'm interested in. And again, like Lexington is super different than, you know, Fayette County is, remarkably different than every county that we touch, right? We have our own issues. We also have a lot of shared issues. Um, and I don't think by any means we need to be telling another county how they could do a program like this. But what we can do is we can say, here's what we've learned. Here's a model that we've built. And we have like in this document that we've, that we've built like several different versions of us, right? Like a version of us for like one staff member, a version of us that's like volunteer, a version of us that's like 10 staff members. Um, and budgets and programming scopes that go along with that. Um, and so I think that it will look different in every community um, because every community is different. Um, but I think some of these same challenges that we have, right, a lack of oversight of local government, a lack of interest and engagement in these local issues, um, and a lack of this sort of relational infrastructure that ties all that stuff together, um, I think that's something that all of our communities share as a challenge. Yeah, uh, you touched on a lot of what I wanted to say, and 
at least I'm slightly more optimistic Louisville could pull off something like Civic Lex than, than Richard is. But, you know, the thing is, is exactly what, um, what Richard was saying that, you know, I, I have a hard time imagining what we could look like in New York City or, or any city, you know, bigger than Louisville like that. I can't conceptualize that. I also don't live in any of those cities. So, you know, that's what in this role, if, you know, cities come to us asking for help, we will give any help we can, but they know their communities best so they can figure out, you know, how best to scale it, what those needs are. And in a similar way, I, you know, similarly interested in Lexington and smaller, but I grew up, I grew up in Jackson County and, you know, loved it there so much. I, I have no idea what the mayor of McKee does. I'm like, and I know the duties on paper because I know what mayors broadly do, but like such a small tax base, such a small budget, you know, uh, the staff is so like just tiny that like, I can't even really begin to think about what that those meetings look like, you know? Um, but you know what? And, and Lexington is interestingly structured because we have, you know, a merged city county government. And, uh, and we're also like this particular size kind of ma- makes it easy for us to sort of hop in and do this stuff. But, you know, you go to Louisville's merger, which is a lot more complicated and just a bigger city. But also, you know, everywhere, everywhere else is like there are cities and there are counties, but really like the counties are where the power is. And so that's, and so that's the balance I would think is figuring out how much you cover cities versus, you know, like if you're in Bowling Green, how much are you covering Bowling Green city council versus the Warren County fiscal court? Like that's the kind of balancing act. And as uh, someone that, you know, loves Kentucky very much and is a nerd and thinks about all these things all the time, Kentucky is really like, I would be curious to see how that shakes out, but really that's, um, uh, that's up to those communities to figure it out. And um, and just one more thing we haven't talked a lot about is sort of the why we exist. And one of the core philosophies about that we have about our work is that on the whole, trust in democracy and trust in governments and civic institutions is like rapidly declining. Like, you know, if you mm-hmm. look at any poll number on those matters, like people just think very, very poorly. And that is not good for uh, for the U.S. And we think that the only way to really rebuild trust in civic institutions is on the ground, local relationship building and civic work. So it has to be a bottom up approach before um, any sort of, you know, civic health can be rebuilt. And that's and that is such a huge reason why, you know, he and I both keep saying, like, communities need to figure out, you know, what works best for them, because it is those inter-community relationships that are going to help, you know, rebuild trust in democracy broadly. We can't show up in, um, uh, we can't show up in Falmouth and say like, all right, Falmouth, this is how you're going to do things because, you know, we don't live there. I've never lived there. I don't think Richard's ever lived there. We have no experience in what those, um, what those are. So, um, so yeah, we just want to leave the ball in their court to help, um, to help, solve their own identified community needs. I feel optimistic that we could have something like this in Louisville too. I, I still feel like um, our city government, it feels small and relational and like you see all the same people at all these kind of things. So I'm optimistic as well. Um, but we, we really enjoyed having you all on and hearing about the impact that you all have made in Lexington. Um, so before we let you go, how can people learn more about Civic Lex and get involved in your programs? 
That is a great question. Well, the first step uh, I would say is go just like get on your phone, civiclex.org, C-I-V-I-C-L-E-X.org. Um, from there, you can learn a little bit more about what we do. Uh, sign up for our weekly newsletter. Um, it's just one email a week and then occasional other emails um, that ask you to give us money, but I won't talk about those. Um, the, but the this the our weekly email is like the thing that people know us the most for. It goes out every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Um, and it just contains like what you need to know about what's happening inside City Hall that week and then what happened the week before. Um, so it's both sort of a, a look forward and a look back. Um, and it's sort of our prime way of just like building that civic muscle, right? Like being like, oh, there is a city council and they meet and I should like those things impact me. And like, it makes an impact on the potholes on my house, like near my house or the stop sign, you know, like those very cliche, like local government things. Um, uh, it's just a reminder that those decisions are being made every day and that you should get engaged. And then beyond that, I mean, we have probably over 50 events or workshops every year um, that are open to the public for folks to come and learn more about these issues. Um, and we actually have this new thing we're doing this year now where instead of us hosting a bunch of workshops, we're, we basically have this suite of workshops that we've designed that are up on our website. And uh, we'll just come and do one for you. So if like you're having some friends over and you're like, you know what I need uh, to learn about city budget, <laughs> um, we'll come and we'll, I am no joke. We will come to your house as long as it feels like it's a safe place for us to go uh, and teach you about how the budget works. Um, and that applies to account to countless things. I think between now and the end of March, we already have like 20 something workshops booked from different organizations. And, and that's something that we offer to folks for free. Um, and is really part of, you know, part of what we see our role in uh, the sort of civic infrastructure is. Um, so yeah, sign up for the weekly, go to our website, uh, and we'll come teach you about uh, city budgets and urban service boundaries and all sorts of stuff over, you know, over some drinks or coffee. Awesome. Well, guys, thank you so much for joining us. Learn so much. You know, always glad to have conversations like this with people who enjoy local and state government as much as we do. So I uh, appreciate you both being here. Yeah, thank Thanks you so, so much. It was a blast. Yes, it's great. Thanks. Jasmine, how can people get a hold of us? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at my old KY pod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a newsletter. You can subscribe to it at tinyletter.com slash my old Kentucky newsletter. And we have a Patreon page where you can support what we're doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash my old Kentucky podcast. And last but not least, we're part of the Demcast Network and the Ford Kentucky Network. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.